and good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. The Synod on Synodality has released a working document for the continental stage of this multi-year church process. It's uh, under the title, Enlarge the Space of Your Tent, quoting from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 54, verse 2. And as I said, it's a working document, but it's, I mean, it's substantial, uh, and it's worth We've been wondering for a long time what is actually meant by this synod on synodality that's coming up. And we've been watching, of course, with some dismay what's been going on uh, with the German bishops uh, with their synodal path. And so we're trying to stay abreast uh, of the developments here so we can better understand what the intent of the process is. We know it has something to do with welcoming uh, those who have uh, have not been heard. Uh, it means listening to those who have been passed over. Uh, to help us understand better what's going on with this reform of church structures, uh, we've got Dr. Matthew Bunsen, executive editor and Washington bureau chief for EW10 News. He's also a senior fellow at the St. Paul Center on Biblical Theology. You can hear him on Register Radio Saturdays at 4 p.m., Sundays at 11 a.m. on Ave Maria Radio. Matthew, good to have you back. Thanks. Great to be with you, as always. Well, this is a big, juicy document. Well, I don't know how <laughs> juicy it is, but it's a big one. So, so uh, let's uh, just tell me how this this place this document in proper significance. What is it? Well, I think uh, the best way to think of this is that this is um, a key document as we move now toward what I think will be a very very significant document will be coming out uh, in the spring of next year, which is the Instrumentum Laboris, which is the working document that will actually serve as a kind of blueprint for the first of what will be two of the Synod of Bishops. So this document, in a way, is is significant because essentially it's the document for the Continental Stage, or DCS, and this is a summary. It's a synthesis of the various reports that have been sent to the Holy See by bishops' conferences around the world, various departments of the Roman Curia, lay movements, religious congregations, etc. So to think of this as um, the next moment in a series of moments leading up to the Synod next October, which of course is now also going to be extended into the subsequent October in 2024. So this is uh, it's a, it's a fairly significant milestone in what is still a very long journey. And I think uh, the level of anxiety, though, that uh, you could see increasing with this document mm-hmm. uh, is also worth noting. I, I guess the question – there are a number of questions I think people have. There are certainly questions I have. Uh, first of all – who had input into this document to begin with? In other words, whose voices are currently being heard? Well, this is one of the really difficult questions. There was a group of uh, experts that uh, was gathered together, uh, and that in- includes various uh, sort of Vatican insiders, various consultors, and others, and they met uh, in Frascati, which is just outside of Rome. Uh, ironically enough, that was also where uh, EWTN gathered uh, all of our affiliates and, and subsidiaries and everything else a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so Frascati is the place to go if you're just outside of Rome and you, you <laughs> want to gather and, and meet. Uh-huh. Um, 
So the question then becomes, as, as you read through what is a 44-page working document, is how they went about um, creating what is described here as a privileged instrument, as they put it, the, through which the dialogue of the local churches among themselves and with the universal church can take place during the continental stage. And then it gets into all of the myriad challenges uh, facing the church uh, globally, the universal church. The question that I, I kept coming back to as I was reading through this document uh, is how they prioritized uh, which of these crises, because there certainly are many, yeah. but then also how they chose to quote and to sort of not cherry pick but to choose – uh, which quotes should be put in. Yeah, what's representative. Right. Exactly. Because obviously this is a document that is intended to guide subsequent discussion. Mm -hmm. And those are some of the imponderables that uh, are always going to be asked uh, in any synodal document, in any preparatory document. So I don't think it's it's an unfair question. I just think it's it's one that given the nature of so many topics uh, and so many potentially controversial topics that I think in this case it assumes particular importance. Did they solicit input um, from outside the bishops themselves? For instance, did they invite uh, those who represent various of the lay movements within the Catholic Church? Did they have input into this? Yeah, I mean, supposedly this is uh, the result. Uh, it's a summary or a synthesis of various other syntheses. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so it's a synthesis on synodality, uh, and we can torture this all day if we want. But supposedly it, it is representative of the summaries and documents and input from not just the dioceses around the world but also the lay movements religious congregations and mm -hmm. officials of the roman curious so it's supposed to be fairly wide-ranging now a big question has been what exactly is the level of participation of catholics all over the world in this and right. We hear reports that there could be as uh, tiny as 1% of Catholics were actually actively engaged in any of the listening sessions that were supposed to have been taking place in different dioceses and different parishes. Now, that's always going to be the case. We, as, as you know, levels of participation vary significantly from parish to parish, from diocese to diocese, and how engaged bishops are and how engaged exactly. the, the laity are. Yeah. So it, it's unfair in a way to say, well, it's only 1%. Because that's fairly close to what we often see with any of these exploratory uh, projects. But given the significance of the topics that are being broached and some of the questions that are being asked and in some cases need to be asked, is that a sufficient number? So I think anything that uh, increases the involvement of laity across the board, across the world, matters. Sure, sure. Um the what issues have uh, risen to the top of the priority list? Well, uh, one of the ways to, to approach this is that the document itself wants three questions uh, to be considered uh, by these continental assemblies that are going to be meeting or gathering between January and March of next year and that, that held on different continents, and there will be one for North America. The first is which, as they put it, intuitions resonate most strongly with the lived experiences and realities of the church in your continent, so which are new and illuminating experiences for you. Then they ask what substantial tensions or divergences emerge is particularly important in your continent's perspective. So in other words, what are the questions or issues that should be addressed? 
And then uh, it says, what are the priorities, recurring themes, and calls to action that can be shared with other local churches? So if we go to the second question, which is the one I think that everyone is really focused on, tensions or divergences, this looks at a host of topics uh, from sexuality to uh, liturgy to a variety of uh, the challenges that we face, uh, including communion, celibacy, divorce, uh, church's teachings on abortion, the ordination of women. All of these things seem to have been opened up for conversation. A particular focus uh, is uh, the question of homosexuality, the so-called LGBTQIA+, uh, Mm -hmm. that is quoted here. Uh, Again, we go to the questions of celibacy and, as I mentioned, ordination of women. So all of the hot-button issues that are such a concern, for example, of the German synodal way, but but are also of real concern to devout and faithful Catholics – who see this constant churning uh, of problems uh, that are sort of epitomized by the German synodal way. Well, well we know that um, there, are, there are always going to be substantial tensions between the church and the world. I mean, this is what St. Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12 at the very beginning where he says, Essentially, I'm paraphrasing here. Don't let yourself be squeezed into the world's mold. You know mm-hmm. that's right. You know, don't take your don't take your agenda uh, from the world. Uh, another passage uh, from uh, James, I believe, is friendship with the world is uh, enemy with of God. Uh, so there's going to be tension. This has been true throughout our history, and I guess I I worry. When, when I feel as though those responsible for this process, um, have they accepted the fact that we don't fit in very well in this world, that there's going to be um, a disconnect in many ways? We want to serve as best we can. We don't want to make unnecessary – we don't want to offend unnecessarily, you know. Mm-hmm. But the point is when we – mentioned that Jesus is Lord, that means that there's a lot of things that aren't Lord, and that, <laughs> That's and right. that creates tension. <laughs> right. And uh, are you willing to submit to him as Lord? Right, right. Uh, in our lives. Uh, the recognition of sin in an era in which uh, th- th- there are very few sins, uh, uh, one of them might be uh, polluting, uh, whereas a lot of other things, including abortion and, and, other, and yeah. various others would be traditional and, and obvious moral sins are no longer considered sins. Right, right. Or opposing them is considered sinful. Yeah. Uh, but we go back, too, to one of the great challenges right from the start of this entire process, and that is the chronic inability uh, to define or at least to comprehend what exactly is meant by synodality. Yeah. Yeah. It, it remains a question mark for so many Catholics, and so they see a document like this, uh, that calls for an inclusive, welcoming church, which is certainly something that uh, is a worthy goal. And then they hear but this it's hardly, phrase. But it's hardly news. Correct. I mean, that's, that's, part of, that's supposed to be part of our DNA. But then we also see in this document uh, on, this, on the continental stage the call for church institutions as participatory bodies – uh, to consider how they might integrate the call to synodality into the ways in which they exercise their functions and their mission, renewing their structures and uh, their structures and procedures. 
what does that mean exactly? Yeah, and, and how are we supposed to be uh, these welcoming and inclusive structures uh, when there are calls also to changes in governance to reflect that, yeah. changes in canon law to reflect that, without a clear set of parameters yeah. as to what that actually means? Yeah. Now, I, it's, it's puzzling to me at this stage. Uh, oh, dear Matthew, we've got to take a break. We'll come back, continue the conversation. Also, I want to mention Pope Francis uh, in Bahrain. Uh, definitely worth discussing where he addresses uh, Muslims. I'm Al Cresta. Stay with me. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, taking a look at this uh, 44-page working document uh, of the Synod on Synodality as they uh, move closer uh, to the actual Synod. And as we were talking last segment, Matthew, uh, you know, we were talking about who do they, who who actually counts, whose voices count in. Uh, this material that they're hearing, but also who ends up deciding what this input means. So uh, if there's a lot of uh, input about uh, the importance of overcoming uh, the church's historic discrimination against women, and so we must then uh, ensure that uh, the ministerial priesthood should be opened uh, to women— uh, if that's the input from those being surveyed mm-hmm. in this process, <laughs> who ends up saying, oh, sorry, guys, that's been settled already? <laughs> right. Yeah, and, and that's uh, – well, you've hit on something very important here, and that is, uh, as we were just finishing up the last segment, what are the guardrails? Right. There do not at least seem to be any – uh, in some of these discussions. Now, the argument would be made, and I think Francis uh, has pointed to this, that we need to have very frank conversations uh, and listening sessions to everyone. Yeah. And that would include Catholics uh, who feel disaffected, who, who feel pushed away, sure. uh, who feel uh, completely removed from the church for various reasons. And uh, the, the elephant in the room for that, of course, is a sex abuse crisis. Right. Right. And, but that also raises issues that you just said of um, the open discrimination of women in some places and very poor enculturation in other places. So it, I understand completely the argument, at least, that uh, we need to be able to hear uh, these voices. The question is how clear are we uh, in what we teach and what we believe and what is actually possible? Or are we establishing in documents like this a false set of expectations that will either lead to massive disappointment and anger when the changes that some are being promised don't take place? Or uh, are we going to end up with, which is what some fear, uh, the kind of situation that we have in this German synodal path where they are going straight down a road of – if not schism, certainly documents that are 
completely contrary to the teachings of the church right. in an official capacity, which would be even more alarming for the faithful across the world and, and so many of the world's bishops. Yeah, yeah, very true. I think this, the problem of raising expectations is very serious. Um, I remember uh, talking with priests, many priests, uh, you know, at least a half dozen priests, talking to me about uh, after the Second Vatican Council, uh, many of them still in seminary, were being promised explicitly in some cases, implicitly in others, that the uh, celibacy requirement was going to be dropped, that, you know, it was no longer going to be part of necessary for priests to remain um, celibate in the Latin Rite. Mm -hmm. Um, And when that didn't happen, uh, there were people who were hurt. I, I don't doubt that some ended up leaving um, the priesthood. But in this case, y- you've got, uh, if you do any reading in this area of sexual ethics uh, and expectations, there are many people who actually do believe that the Catholic Church should and will have some kind of right to bless homosexual couples who make some sort of pledge of fidelity. Um, and that's just not going to happen. That's right. You know? uh, and, and it doesn't help uh, that in the text itself, there is a call, for example, of, quote, a church capable of radical inclusion. Right. Now, theologically, we can, we can grasp that. Yes, exactly. Uh, the, <laughs> yeah, of course. Jesus died for all, for heaven's sake. Yeah. Precisely. And, and I, I think if there was anyone who understood the concept of radical inclusion, it was our Lord. Just ask St. Matthew. Yes. Having said that, the problem is that what do we mean by inclusion in this sense, especially right. given the it, – it is laden now with ramifications that go beyond theological but also into political, ideological, uh, all of these dimensions that are part of the culture. Yeah. So we need to define our terms better by what exactly we mean by inclusion because this is a document that's one of the – very few documents that we have seen in the history of the church uh, that uses phrases like LGBTQIA+. Yeah. Highly politically, uh, the laden terms. I mean, they, uh, the inclusion is a buzzword. I mean, equity, diversity, inclusion. You know, that's a cultural buzzword right now. Yes. Uh, I, I, it, I don't know why it's necessary. If they want to use it, fine. But it ought to have a definition so that we can understand it as compatible with the church's self-understanding. Right. And, and the document itself also makes note of what it describes as knots of conflict in the church, but then notes that there is, a, quote, a diversity of opinion on things like priestly ordination for women. And then it, 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 I wouldn't say it dismissively refers to it, but it states that some reports called for the ordination of women and others considered it, quote, a closed issue. The two are not equal. <laughs> right. No, no, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we can do one, but we can't do the other. Yeah. And we, we cannot uh, ordain women right. to the priesthood. That right. That is very clear. And, and so there's an, a kind of equivalence that we begin to see uh, in some of these discussions. And I think this is why there is such a, a, a certain amount of anxiety, again, that is coming around this. And then we have a somewhat vague language about how, well, the Holy Spirit, uh, that we are hearing the voice of the Spirit from the people of God. 
beautiful phrase, mm-hmm. but where does that lead exactly? Yeah. And, and this is beginning to remind me a lot. You mentioned uh, the Second Vatican Council. I'm reminded of the horrendous game of expectations that surrounded Humane Vitae. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, that's right. And that was a bombshell that went off, uh, at least in North America. Um, and there wasn't sufficient, um, we're going to say, it, 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 church leadership didn't seem prepared uh, to do apologetics for the Holy Father's teaching. Right. Yeah. Now, Cardinal Jean-Claude Olerich, uh of Luxembourg, who is the relator general uh, for the, the Synod of Bishops uh, coming up, did stress that this is not a document, this particular one, on the, the continental phase, is itself not the instrumentum laboris. Right, right. That's, it's, it's very significant on his part to, to point that out, but to remind everybody, because it is not. Uh, yeah. And you mentioned earlier about what is the legal weight of this. Well, it doesn't really have any. Uh, this is, uh, he himself used the phrase that this is a synthesis of the syntheses. Mm, yeah. okay. And therefore, it, as, as he puts it, it is simply, it is not emerging as he puts it out of theological writings. It is simply what he describes as the fruit of the lived synodality, the lived theology, a dimension of the life in the church. And so this is itself subject then to possible misinterpretation as to what it is. But the fact that we're having these discussions and the next phase is leading directly into the instrumentum laboris, much as we saw with the synod on the, the two of them, on the family in 1415, you know, 2014 and 2015, we had that led to Amoris Laetitia. Uh, but then we – this reminds me increasingly also of the Amazonian synod yeah. Yeah. Uh, where this instrumentum laboris seemed to be opening the door for all kinds of very worrisome conversations that did eventually happen. Uh, and the document that they presented to the Holy Father did contain a number of things, such as the ordination of married men, which, as we all know, is, is a question of law in the church. It's not the same thing as the ordination of women, but Francis took that document and did not embrace it. Right. He wrote Carita Amazonia, which was essentially a restatement, not of what was happening in the Amazonian Synod, but of Aparecida, that the document there of the, the meeting of all the bishops of Latin America, yes. that he himself helped to write. Yeah, much better document, too. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's an important factor to remember here. Yeah. That whoever, we, we continue to assume that Pope Francis will be Pope next year, he will be Pope in 2024, Um that this is ultimately going to be his synod, or whoever happens to be on the, the throne of Peter, that will be his synod. Right. That's an element that we cannot forget in these discussions. That's right. That's right. And so, uh, on the one hand, we, we're trying to w- keep our eyes open through this, trying to understand the process, but we we don't want to, uh, you know, uh, call wolf here. Uh, it, we're nowhere near that stage yet, but we're trying to understand the process and don't want to give this more weight at this stage than it deserves. So I think that's a good good warning, and we'll see uh, as this develops what happens. I yeah. do want you to tell me what happened in Bahrain, though, with Pope Francis. Well, this is uh, – it, it, it escaped a lot of notice in some ways in the press. I mean, it was a remarkable – it was the first pope to visit Bahrain. Uh, he went as part of an interfaith meeting. Uh, organized by the, the Kingdom of Bahrain. And in that sense, I think it was both an, ec- an important ecumenical gathering. Uh, we had Patriarch Bartholomew of Constantinople, but it also had some 
very powerful images of interreligious dialogue and pleas for peace uh, and a stress on the priorities, as, as Francis put it, of prayer, of uh, religious freedom, of education, of, of women's rights, of children's rights, uh, and, of course, the, the great worry uh, that is present uh, that the war in Ukraine and other conflicts around the world are continuing to push us to a very dangerous place uh, globally. Yeah. And I, I was very interested in, for example, with the, the presence of Mohammed al-Tayeb, the, the grand imam of uh, Al-Azhar University in yeah. Cairo, mm-hmm. who was talking about um, the, the, the great worry that everyone has uh, about these conflicts spilling over. Right, right. You know, he, this has reference, too, to the document on human fraternity, which he signed in Abu Dhabi in 2019, uh, aimed at fostering closer Catholic-Muslim uh, relations. Uh, was there explicit reference to that? Yeah, uh, there was some reference to it because uh, uh, that moment in Abu Dhabi, controversial as it was at the time, uh, is still one of those means, I think, of building those bridges uh, between the Catholic faith and Islam. And in that sense, I think uh, Pope Francis is uh, a very significant figure in recent years. Where the the question mark always is going to be is uh, the area of reciprocity. Is this dialogue leading to an easing or an improvement of the life of Christians in those parts of the world? That's an open question, but Francis is willing to travel some distance to try to make it happen. Very good. I agree. I'll mention, too, especially on this election day, that uh, when they were talking about fundamental human rights to be respected, Pope Francis said, uh, in the first place is the right to life. Yes. And... The need to guarantee that right always. I'm glad to hear that was foremost in his mind and thinking. Thank you, Matthew. God bless.